Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. On today's show, we're speaking with economist and historian Michael Hudson about his new book, The Bubble and Beyond, a comprehensive look at the impact of financialization on the United States and the world. Michael Hudson is going to describe what has happened in history in examples from the Roman Empire and the Sumerians when the creditor class has its desires prioritized over the rest of us. Then, after we wrap up our discussion with Michael, we're going to hear from Nate Hagens from the U.S. Society of Ecological Economics Conference earlier this year in Burlington, Vermont, as he discusses the interplay between debt and global energy systems. My name's Seth, and I'm joined by my co-host, Justin. You're listening to episode number 67 of The Extra Environmentalist. So we're going to start out listening to Michael Hudson talking about what rent-seeking really means. Fortune's always Rent-seeking is, instead of earning profits, you're trying to get something for nothing. Economic rent is the excess of price over the cost of production. So in order to define economic rent, you have to have a theory of price and value. That's what classical economics is all about, from the physiocrats to Adam Smith to John Stuart Mill to Alfred Marshall to the progressive era. Marx. They all talked about value and price theory. But now, since 1980, the history of economic thought has been dropped from the curriculum. So people are no longer taught price and value theory. They're taught simply that the value of anything is whatever the market price is. And there's no room in this curriculum for the concept of economic rent to be taught. And without a concept of economic rent, you can't have an excess profit tax, you can't have a windfall gains tax, you can't have a tax on unearned income. And all of a sudden, the phenomenon of unearned income, which is what rent is, it's income without working and enterprise or outlay, the phenomenon isn't in your consciousness. So in order to do something about it, you have to have the public awareness of value 
and price theory and economic rent theory develop outside of the academic curriculum because the neoliberals have stripped it away. They're actually censors, and by dropping the history of economic thought from the curriculum, they can say, what we're saying is a free market is what Adam Smith is saying, but of course it's the opposite of what Adam Smith is saying. Adam Smith said that you should tax the land, essentially get rid of monopolies, and bring prices in line with the cost of production. But now, under the neoliberals here and in Europe and the Soviet Union, you say a free market is a market for us to charge whatever we want from you. A free market for Wall Street is the freedom of Wall Street to reduce the rest of the economy to debt peonage. That's our freedom, and that's the only kind of freedom that anyone's ever talked about in history. And if you don't believe it, what are you going to do about it? Because we haven't taught you economic history. We've not only dropped from the curriculum, the history of economic thought, we've dropped economic history itself, so you don't know anything at all. You're kept in the dark. That's education system privatized Wall Street style. There's a lot of people on the left and the right who are becoming increasingly critical of quantitative easing, and the real question that we have is, how does it actually work? What does it mean that the U.S. Federal Reserve is buying these $85 billion of assets and continuing on this path, even though they're talking about tapering now? Quantitative easing only has to do with the Federal Reserve and the banking system. There used to be an idea that if the Federal Reserve creates money for any purpose, that somehow that spills over into prices, and the prices reflect the money supply. But in this case, the Federal Reserve is only trying to affect asset prices. It's trying to affect mortgage prices and it's trying to affect bond and stock prices. And so the effect of quantitative easing three is only going into the stock and the bond markets. And now that that's happening, you have the press say, look, there's a recovery for the 1%. The 1% are getting richer. Isn't that wonderful? They're the job creators. But the 1% use their money not to create jobs, but to kill jobs. So they're giving more money to the financial markets to basically kill the economy. And the result is that instead of inflating real prices, and especially instead of inflating wages, the effect is to bail out the banks to save them from having to write down the debts and to impose debt deflation. So the results of quantitative easing are the diametric opposite of what the Federal Reserve promises they are. It's hurting the economy, it's shrinking the economy, it's helping the banks, it's not helping employment, it's only helping the central bank's clients, which are the banks. The Federal Reserve is supposed to be working in favor of the economy, but instead, over time, it's begun to treat its stockholders, namely the banks, as its clients to be protected, and its job is to protect the banks from the economy. And we're in a situation now where the economy is so heavily layered down with debt that either the banks are saved or the economy. The Federal Reserve says, save the banks, not the economy. And that's basically the result of the Obama administration's decision to follow Rubenomics and to follow his campaign contributors rather than to follow his promises. So the Federal Reserve is, in effect, breaking all of the promises that Obama made. It's broken the TARP law that promised to write down the debts, and it's just an example of populism. Economists tell us that giving this money to these banks and to these very well-off people are just going to help with a trickle-down effect, that everyone's just going to get better jobs, they're going to make more jobs by printing this money. 
this doesn't seem to work very well. This is not really creating the jobs that we want. The trickle-down is a pretense. The trickle-down theory would work if there were only one economy and if the 1% spend its money on buying consumer goods. This argument goes back more than 200 years. Malthus said that he was trying to justify what the British landlords got. And he said, well, the British landlords, they buy good clothes, they have butlers, they employ coachmen, they have tailors, that all trickles down. But the fact is, when the banks get money, they don't spend it on the economy at large. When they do spend it on themselves, on bonuses and salaries, they do buy Picassos, they do buy a lot of junk art. They give to their favorite right-wing foundations, but they don't employ labor. Let's look at what happened with the Federal Reserve QE2 a year ago. That was $800 billion. The Financial Times and other financial press noticed the entire $800 billion of QE2 was spent by the banks on arbitrage, mainly for foreign currency, and for interest rates, uh, the banks borrowed from the Fed at one quarter of a percent. It bought Brazilian bonds yielding 11 percent. It bought Australian bonds yielding five and a quarter percent. And it pocketed the difference in interest rates as income. And it got a foreign exchange benefit as the uh, Brazilian currency and the Australian currency rose against the dollar. None of this money was spent in the real economy. It was all spent within the financial sector. So the great lie that you're hearing from the Federal Reserve is that Wall Street and the financial sector is part of the real economy. Think of it more as a parasite that's wrapped around the economy, sucking the blood out of it. So you mentioned quantitative easing too and how this was tied to all of the global bond purchases. Could you explain a little bit more about how that worked and what the consequences are now? What does this mean that the whole quantitative easing two policy seems to be reversing? What are going to be the effects of that? The policy itself has not yet been reversed, but there is a threat of ending it at some point. Here's what happens. If you can borrow at a quarter percent and you can buy any stock that's yielding dividends of more. You can buy bonds that yielding 10%. You can buy junk bonds that are yielding higher rates. You get to pocket the difference between the 10% or whatever you're getting or the 5% or even the 3% and the quarter of a percent you're paying. However, when you gamble on buying all these bonds on credit, say you'll borrow a million dollars and you'll buy a million dollars worth of corporate bonds, three-year bonds, or government bonds at 2%, all of a sudden, if quantitative easing ends, then interest rates go up. When interest rates go up, bond prices come down. So all of a sudden, you're going to take a loss on your holdings once these prices begin to fall. And so you want to, all of a sudden, the Fed turns Wall Street into a game of musical chairs. And the idea is to jump off before the prices begin to go down. So once the Wall Street people hear that the Fed is not going to be pumping this money into the banks to speculate on bonds, to speculate on stocks, and to speculate on arbitrage, all of a sudden the bondholders are selling and say, okay, we're taking our money and running. Let's take our profits, sell the bonds, and leave the suckers holding the bag. So what do they buy instead of bonds then? Where do they put their money? Loans. They've borrowed a million dollars from the Fed. They've made a couple, let's say $10,000 or $20,000 on interest rates. They say, okay, from here on in, there's only going to be a loss. Let's sell the bonds, pay off the Fed, keep the money we've made. The game is over.
they don't reinvest that money. They just take the cash and just hold that, it. By investing, they pay off the borrowed money that they've already borrowed from the Fed. Hmm. So then why would the Fed want to end quantitative easing at all? Because as you just pointed out in your last question, it didn't work for the economy. People are onto it. People are saying, wait a minute, why is the Fed making the 1% even richer when it's not doing a single thing for the economy? When they're cutting taxes, they're pushing deflation here, they're pushing austerity, why should the Fed continue to give free profits and a guarantee free ride to Wall Street and the 1% while it's smacking the 99% right in the face? So it's the people are getting wind of this deal and they're rising up and they're getting angry about it. They're not rising up and getting angry. This is America. <laughs> they're sitting back and getting frustrated, but the Fed realizes that it's just going to be in real trouble. It's pushed so much money into the market for quantitative easing that people have bought junk bonds, that is for corporate takeovers, for corporations that are broke, for municipal bonds, and they realize that they're going to begin to be defaults. And once they're defaults, and Congress and the voters say, wait a minute, here the Obama administration has given all this money to his campaign contributors, and now it's all defaults, and now they're asking for another bailout to bail out the QE2 and to bail out the QE3, the more money that the banks have lost on the Federal Reserve loans, there's a certain point at which this ripoff has to stop. So let's move forward a little bit and say that the Fed actually does decide to taper or NQE in six months or some point in the future. How do you see that playing out in those defaults? Do the defaults start pretty quickly, or is this something that kind of plays out over a period of years? It's difficult to know because the government may simply lend money to companies that may default. Already we're seeing defaults in states and localities. So the big problem now is state and local budgets that are suffering. And the first result is that they're not able to pay the money into their pension plans to fund the pensions that they're supposed to. So somebody has to lose and the states and municipalities say, well, we have to pay the bondholders legally, but we don't have to pay the pensioners. So we're scaling down pensions, just like in Detroit. Detroit really is a model for what's happening. The bondholders say, okay, there's a downturn. Unemployment's up in Detroit. Certainly quantitative easing has not done anything for Detroit. Time to close the art museum. Sell off your Picassos. Sell off your art. Be a model for when Europe goes to Greece and says, sell off your Parthenon. Why don't you do that? Remember, after World War I, the U.S. government, Congress, suggested that England begin to sell off the British Museum and its arts. This is what's happening. This is foreclosure time turn toward privatization. The ending of quantitative easing is, of course, going to create a crisis. And now you're going to have the Obama administration's real hammer blow on the American economy. They're going to say it's time for a public-private partnership on infrastructure. And they're going to give enormous government guarantees on huge pork barrel programs for infrastructure. And the effect is going to be very much like Margaret Thatcher's program in England. It's going to be basically bad infrastructure at a huge price because once they privatize infrastructure, privatize the roads, all of a sudden they're going to turn the roads into toll roads. And they're going to turn all of the public assets 
all of a sudden, the public services will have to include all of the costs that Wall Street loads them down with. Very much like when Wall Street lent money to Chicago and said, give us your sidewalks, give us your parking meters, put up the parking meters in Chicago. Now it's much more expensive to park. So the Obama administration's intention is to give a gold mine to Wall Street of the public infrastructure that it can then put up toll booths and charge access prices to get on the roads, for water, for public health, for everything the city does. All of a sudden now, you'll have to pay the Obama administration's selected clients on Wall Street for what they're able to grab. And essentially, what happened under Yeltsin in Russia is now being planned for the United States. That's the follow-up to QE3. So this privatization, will it even affect programs that have been held sacred for so long, like education? I mean, are you going to privatize that? That's already being done in Chicago. Obama's chief of staff was Rahm Emanuel. And in Chicago, he's already said, we've got to close down the education for the racial minorities. We've got to close down education for the poor. And we've got essentially to break the teachers union. Every locality now has one objective in mind, break unionized labor. And you break unionized labor in America by fighting the teachers union and the school teachers who are among the most unionized. So they're privatizing the schools and immediately hiring non-unionized labor instead of unionized teachers. You've initiated a race to the bottom in Chicago. And that's what the whole labor union fight in Chicago is about. Their education is just exactly what they're aiming at, to build in these higher costs. And it's a giveaway to the privatizers and a giveaway to the banks that are financing the privatizers who will buy the rights to invest with borrowed funds so that they pay all of the earnings they get to the banks as interest and they get to keep the capital gain, very much like the real estate markets functioned in America since World War II. Now, a lot of people have said that all the quantitative easing will lead to inflation and devalue the currency. But what we're seeing is that there's this tremendous deflationary wave that's starting to flow throughout global markets. Why is that deflationary dynamic presenting itself? Well, as I just said, my first comment was, think of the economy as being divided into two parts. There's the wealth part of the fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate of assets. If you're a millionaire, you have a choice of how to spend your next 100000 in dividends. You can either spend it on consumption, on the real economy, or you can spend it on stocks and bonds and real estate and artworks. So this money that's being created is not going into the real economy to be spent on the kind of goods and services that labor produces. It's going into the asset markets, into Wall Street, into the stock and bond markets, and into the purchase of real estate. So it's buying assets, not goods and services. Let's say quantitative easing three ends and this wave of privatization goes through. What will life be like on the ground for people in this privatized, debt deflation-stricken America in, say, five or ten years? How will their lives change? What can you really see for uh, individual families? How will their lives be different? Well, try reading books about how England was in the 13th century. We're moving, essentially, neo-feudalism. To make a long story short, people are going to find that instead of getting free government services as before, now they have to pay for them. And if they pay for these essential services, and most public services are essential, that's why they're in the public sector to begin with, to keep them out of the hands of monopolies, now all of a sudden the public services that were provided on a subsidized basis or freely are going to be privatized 
without any price regulation for it, and all of a sudden people are going to have to pay market prices that include interest charges, Wall Street underwriting charges, the cost of dividends, exorbitant management fees, bonuses for management, political contributions, buying off judges, buying off the courts, buying off the politicians to make sure that the people are not able to stop, you're gouging them. That's how the system is developing, and it's not democracy anymore. We're seeing a transformation from democracy into financial oligarchy, and essentially the word that used to be used for these people were rentiers, people living off their rents, landlords, and now the monopolists. So we're seeing what used to be profits or public tax revenues turned into monopoly rents. And that's going to be the word that's going to be used more and more to describe the coming decade. Everything is going to be monopolized and people are going to have to pay through the nose for essential services. And many people can't afford it. There's not going to be much discretionary income and choice left. So people are going to essentially not have much choice as to what they can use their spare income for, because all their income is going to have to go to paying the debts that they've taken out, the interest on the credit cards, the taxes, the wage withholding, health insurance, medical costs, transportation, electricity, everything that has been monopolized they're going to have to pay for. And we're seeing the end of consumerism and the end of consumer choice. We talked with Rick Wolf in our last interview about how our education system tells us that we're living in a democracy, a fair nation by the people, for the people. And yet we have business that influences most of government, even running many of the services that we rely on and we come to expect as governmental services. How much longer can we live in this illusion of democracy and how can we remain in this kind of illusion while business runs our whole country? There's no way of knowing how, when it'll end until it actually stops. A century ago, a political economist said, thought that, well, in order to get economic reform, we need parliamentary reform. We need the majority of citizens to vote. And the theory was that citizens would vote in their self-interest. But the strategy of the financial class is, okay, let's let them vote over gay rights or not gay rights. Let them vote over marriage, over racial equality. Let them vote over social issues. But let's distract them so that the one thing that everybody, Republicans and Democrats, can agree on is we're going to serve Wall Street. You don't let them vote on that. Democracy today is you can vote yes or yes, please, or yes, thank you. That's a vote. But you don't get to vote on economic policy because the Federal Reserve is independent. You have all this mantra repeated again and again, an independent central bank is the hallmark of democracy. It's actually the hallmark of oligarchy. It's actually saying, you democracy can't have anything to do with a bank that controls your economic life. That's our choice, and we listen to our campaign contributors, not to the voters. And that's really what politics has begun here. Think of politics as divided into two columns, like a Chinese menu. Column A is what everybody wants, better living standards, better education, equality. Column B is what the campaign contributors want, the antithesis, lower living standards and higher profits, less equality, lower taxes for the rich, higher taxes for workers. The genius of a politician, of someone like Obama, is to promise 
the voters, of course, he's for equality, and then to actually, in practice, do exactly the opposite. You do column B, everything your campaign contributors want. That's populist politics, and that's what Obama is a genius at. He's been able to divide and conquer the voters so that they think of his party as being progressive. And of course, he couldn't do it without the Republican Party under the Koch brothers playing ball. And the Republicans say, we're going to move so far to the right that the Democrats, even though they're now right-wing Republicans, basically, they're less bad than the new Republican Party. And so the people get to vote for awful and less awful. That's the new Democratic choice here between the Republicans and the Democrats. It's like good cop, bad cop kind of thing. Well, yeah. no, it's between sadistic, psychopathic cop and the <laughs> cop that's going to rape you and cut up your face. They're both bad cops. There isn't it's, a good cop in this picture. It's the illusion of choice that people have. You know, they have the Coke Pepsi, they have the McDonald's Burger King, and they have Democrats and Republicans. And they're choosing between the bad and the worse. And that's how many people describe voting in elections these days. They say, well, this is the lesser of two evils. And when I hear that, it just makes me cringe. Why do we have to vote for evil in the first place? I'm wondering now in the public consciousness, we've had two presidents back to back who are basically the same in so many ways from two different parties. I'm wondering if now that this kind of similarity that has penetrated far enough into the public consciousness so that maybe possibly we might have a choice that in a coming election somewhere along the line where these two choices will not be the same, or maybe we'll have a third party emerge where there's something that will rear its head and say, oh, maybe we don't have to vote for two evils. Maybe we can vote for something that's positive a little. Do you think that's going to happen? No. In America, it's very difficult to have a third party. People have been discussing this for 50 years. In the 50s, people were saying, gee, shouldn't the socialists break off from the Democratic Party? Why is labor stuck with the Democratic Party? And it's because of the system here that is really a two-party system, and it's almost impossible to break into that system. That's most of the problem. And I don't see any way of getting around that. You'd mentioned something in your first question that you were talking about the presidency. The illusion is that the president actually means something. If you look at George Bush and Obama, there's something in common, and that is neither of them really had any values at all. They were just blank slates. They both promised their contributors, we're not going to do a thing. You, our campaign contributors, get to name all of our cabinet ministers. We're going to let the Treasury Secretary do what he does. We're going to let the Federal Reserve person do what he does. We're going to let the commerce and education and all the other people do. We're not going to do a thing. Our job is only to step up and be the public relations guy for these. So you don't have a president as leader anymore. The pretense is that somehow the president embodies all of these policies, but the president's there not to make policy, but to sell the policy to the people. And the president sells a policy to the people by being able to voice what the people feel. President Clinton will say, I feel your pain. Then he sticks his finger in their eye, gouges their cheek, stabs them and says, yeah, yeah, I feel your pain. Then he stamps and breaks their kneecap. Yeah, I feel your pain. That's what the president does. And that's what Obama does. We've got to have equality. And then he refuses to promote a living wage. He refuses to raise the minimum wage here. Yep, I really feel for you poor people. And then he tears down their neighborhood, kicks them all out, and turns it over to the gentrifiers. I really feel for you. Now, how long are the people going to think, boy, he really feels my pain while he's kicking me in the face? 
it's definitely hard to speculate at when timing would develop where people would realize that these politicians are not acting in their interest and this really is the dynamic that's going on. But what real alternative do we have? You know, let's say QE ends, the stock market crashes, and, and suddenly there's some bright light in Congress that realizes we need a new economic paradigm and they ask you to testify in front of such a commission. What would you tell them to start doing in terms of policy to start really addressing the problems that we have? The problem is that we've reached a limit in the economy, and there's no marginal fix that is going to change things. We're only a structural change can address the problems that we have. And the first structural change is exactly what Obama promised with no intention at all of carrying through. You have to write down the debts to the ability to be paid. America is like England and like Greece and Latvia and is going to remain in debt deflation, in austerity, until the debts are written down. And I don't see that there's any way within the existing political framework that Congress is going to be willing to do it. I think you saw on Frontline what one of his people said. We lay awake at night worrying about if we throw the crooks in jail, what about their wife and children? That's so unhappy. We've got to let them throw 10 million people out of their homes into the street so that their wife and children won't be unhappy. When you have someone going on television saying this, there is nothing Congress can do. The game is over. There will have to be a change in the political structure of society in order to bring the change in the economic structure that's required to avoid going into a permanent debt deflation and depression. So we've got to wait for a larger, broader political change in the structure of society? And if so, how do you see that emerging? I don't. <laughs> There's no way of seeing it right now. In the past, it always took what used to be called a great awakening to happen. There has to be a popular movement to realize that the system is broken. I don't see this occurring in Europe. I don't see it occurring in North America. I certainly don't see it occurring in the former Soviet Union. So it's just going to be a slow crash, a slow shrinkage. So you actually worked on Wall Street. Can you tell us a little bit of what it's like working inside of that financial system? My job no longer exists in banks. When I joined first the Savings Bank's Trust Company and then Chase Manhattan, I was in the Economic Research Department. And my job was to develop statistical formats to see how much debt an economy could pay. For the savings banks, it's how much mortgage debt can the housing market supply. For Chase, it was how much money can a Latin American country afford to borrow and pay as interest, meaning how much of a trade surplus can it make so that all this trade surplus is paid to the bank as interest for bank loans for uh, whatever there. Now, all of the banks have replaced their research departments with publications, and that the names of the departments have been changed from research to research and publications. So when I was on Wall Street, that's how I learned about how the economy worked. It was a wonderful experience. I could not have learned about the balance of payments or about debt or about national income accounting from the universities because this is missing from the academic curriculum. The curriculum doesn't teach data analysis. It doesn't teach balance of payments analysis. I had to work on Wall Street to learn, but that was 50 years ago. And everybody wanted to really discuss what was happening in the economy. But now banks and brokerage houses mainly hire salesmen or people who are selling their product, which is debt, and it's a completely different world. 
a growing family with a lot of debt, a young couple with no down payment, a business owner whose income was hard to document. Every one of them was turned down for a home loan by three different lenders. I'm with Countrywide and I got them all approved. So if you need a lender who actually finds ways to make loans, call Countrywide. We're America's number one home loan lender. No one can do what Countrywide can. Ben, there's been a lot of talk about a housing bubble, particularly you know, from the Fed, from all sorts of, of uh, uh, different places. Can you give us your view as to whether or not there is a housing bubble out there? Well, I, I guess I don't buy your premise. It's a pretty unlikely possibility. We've never had a decline in house prices on a nationwide, nationwide basis. So what I think is more likely is that house prices will slow, maybe stabilize, might slow consumption spending a bit. I don't think it's going to drive the economy too far from its full employment path, though. So would you agree with Alan Greenspan's comments recently that we've got some areas of the country that are seeing froth, not necessarily a national situation, but certainly froth in some areas? You, you can see some types of, air, uh, some types of speculation, investors uh, turning over condos quickly. So those sorts of things you see in some local areas. Um, I'm hopeful that, and I'm confident, in fact, that the uh, bank regulators will, will pay close attention to the kinds of loans that are being made, making sure that underwriting is done right. Um, but I, I do think that this is mostly a localized problem and not something that's going to affect the national economy. But how do we know when irrational exuberance has unduly escalated asset values, which then become subject to unexpected and prolonged contractions, as they have in Japan over the past decade? We as central bankers need not be concerned if a collapsing financial asset bubble does not threaten to impair the real economy, its production, jobs, and price stability. Indeed, the sharp stock market break of 1987 had few negative consequences for the economy. Are U.S. Treasury bonds still safe to invest in? Very much so. I think there's a the United States can pay any debt it has because we can always print money to do that. So there is zero probability of default. The United States is only two days away from financial collapse unless lawmakers can strike a budget deal to avoid default. We're talking about global economic financial chaos is what's being described and uh, I, I prefer not to play uh, roulette like that. The depths of human folly are fathomless, but we're talking about politicians now. So if the depths of human folly are fathomless, with politicians, it's even worse. Oh, a default would be a catastrophic event. You would have the increase in the cost of borrowing for um, around the globe. You would have inflation in the U.S. Uh, increasing on the back of a very sharply falling dollar. And it would uh, basically affect every single country in the world, given that the, the dollar oh, remains the, uh, the key reserve currency. You know, you have to keep in mind, how did this happen? Robert Rubin, uh, at the time CEO of Goldman Sachs and later uh, chairman, co-chairman of Citibank, Jamie Dimon and Penny Pritzker of Superior Bank, Jamie Dimon of, of J.P. Morgan Chase, who found Barack Obama, a state senator. Uh, whoever, you know, whoever heard of this guy, they got behind him. They raised three quarters of a billion dollars to name themselves a president within hours hours of his election, Obama named Summers and his dog's body, Geithner, to run the U.S. economy within hours. It meant that the deal was cut as part of the election deal. In other words, they sent in the banker's boys. This is very dangerous stuff because he works for these guys. He works. He literally, when I say he works for these guys, I don't mean it's, like, it's not a metaphor. He gets checks. He's made millions. Well, the United States of America doesn't run out 
without paying the tab. We pay our bills. We meet our obligations. We have never defaulted on our debt. We're not going to do it now. We create it as a credit card mess. We spend the money that we don't possess. Our religion is to go and blow it all. So it's shopping every Sunday at the mall. You are listening to episode number 67 of The Extra Environmentalist. And today, we're speaking with Michael Hudson about the bubble and beyond. So your new book is called The Bubble and Beyond, and what really happens as the financial system fails? We've been talking about the feudal dynamic. Does the end of our current global economic system as we know it mean the end of our civilization as we know it? How do you see that shaping up? Well, civilization goes on. I mean, the Roman Empire collapsed and brought on a dark age for almost a thousand years. Civilization went on, but it became an oligarchy and poor and poor and poor. Ecologists have talked about reaching a limit of global warming and of carbon dioxide and of water levels, but you can think of debt as debt pollution, is somehow polluting the economy, and when all of the economic surplus is going to pay the creditors in the form of interest and amortization and penalty fees, then all of a sudden there's no money for goods and services anymore, and there's simply a slow crash, and that's what we're in. In order to buy a home, You have to go into a lifetime of debt during your working life to work off the mortgage. In order to get an education, you have to pay so much student debt that you're not able to get married and move out of your parents' house and start a family. So the result that you're finding in Latvia is a wonderful example. In Greece or Ireland today, you're finding, for one thing, population rates decline sharply. President Putin said that privatization and neoliberalism in Russia has killed more Russians than all of World War II. Financial war is very much like a military war. The population will decline, people will stop having children, stop getting married, and usually there's emigration. In Latvia, in the last 10 years, 10% of the population, mainly of working age, have had to emigrate. Uh, For America, there'd have to be 30 million Americans emigrating in order to keep up with the Irish or the Latvian or the Greek rates of immigration. But they're not teaching enough Chinese in the schools for them to be able to move anywhere. Yeah, they're stuck very much so. Now, there's the example of Iceland where they basically said to their international creditors, we're not going to pay you. Can you talk about the example of Iceland? Is that really what happened and how is it working so out? What happened at all. You're completely misinformed. And there's a myth in the paper that somehow Iceland got free of debt. It didn't get free of debt at all. It let a new set of vulture banks come in, take over the existing banks. Actually, Iceland is in a much worse condition than most other countries. And that's because unlike the situation in America or Canada or Europe, the debts are tied to the consumer price index, and that means to the price of imports, to the exchange rates. So that now, if you had a house that was worth $100,000 in 2008, uh, and you had to borrow 90000 to buy the house, now you owe 180000 on it because the kroner has fallen in value. So Icelandic real estate is underwater. The banks have been making a killing all this. However, Iceland has capital controls. It's let the banks 
rip off the rest of the economy there, but it says you can't transfer all this money that you have abroad because if you transferred these Icelandic kroner back into euros or dollars or Swiss francs, all of a sudden, of course, the kroner would fall again. So the banks are sitting on a mountain of domestic currency that they can't convert into foreign exchange, and the economy is frozen in. They don't know what to do about all of this debt that the banks hold on the rest of the economy. So there's a pretense that Iceland has somehow done it right by giving everything to the banks, but the story simply has not been told in the American press. You can be sure it's told in Icelandic all the time in, in Iceland, but neither of the parties that have got in, the coalition, are able to deal with this. You look at ancient Japan, you look at ancient Rome, coming in, into lots of debt is, is not something that is new. This is something that's happened throughout society's history. But in um, Rome, it took a hundred-year social war, and what, essentially Rome did what Pinochet did in Chile. They killed all of the pro-debtor advocates. There was a civil war. There was mass murder by the creditors in the Senate. In the Senate, they took the benches and they forced the Gracchi and all the people voting for the debtors' party over the cliff and killed them all. And then there was civil war, mass fighting for 100 years, and then the creditors took over. So this is not a smooth transition. Nowhere as smooth as it is under Mr. Obama. Well, I wanted to ask about some details about Rome's debt situation. Could you tell us about how that story played out and how their economic system failed and crumbled and how the whole dynamic of debt interwove into that whole story? Well, for 3,000 years before Rome, you had basically money and debt begun in the public sector. They began in the temples and later the palaces of Sumer, Babylonia, and their near, near Eastern neighbors. So most debts were owed by, for instance, sharecroppers would owe a rent debt to the temple or palace of one-third of the crop or what was estimated to be. If you're a worker and you went out to the bar to drink ale or beer, you'd owe the beer woman money that would be a debt supposedly paid when you got the crop and you, you sold it. As long as most debts were owed to the palace or the temples, to the rulers, it was easy for rulers to cancel debts because you were canceling debts that are owed to yourself. That's the advantage of having credit as a public utility. It can be managed in the public interest. But after about 1200 B.C., things changed. Weather changed in around 1200 B.C. There was a dark age for almost 500 years. And you had the Near Eastern traders from Phoenicia and Syria go to Greece, Rome, and they brought the practice of interest-bearing debt with them to the Etruscans, who spread it to the rest of Rome, to Greece. But these are the chieftains and the leading aristocratic families now became the creditors, and they got rid of the kings. They got rid of any government or king that could overrule what they were doing. And once debts were owed to a ruling aristocracy, the senators in Rome and the patricians, there was no authority to cancel the debt. And so Rome had the most harsh debt laws of anywhere. You had essentially the right of creditors not only to reduce debtors to permanent bondage, whereas it was limited in time in the ancient Near East, but you had the right to take over the land, and most of the money that was made by the creditors or the army generals or the monopolists was plowed into land, and you had a concentration of land ownership with the creditor class that essentially stripped the economy of money 
So the urban economy itself shrunk, and you entered a period of a dark age for a thousand years until the Crusades looted Byzantium, and there was a huge influx of silver and gold from the Byzantines through Venice, Genoa, and then upwards into Atlantic Europe. And then later you had the discovery of the New World that, again, was a looting of the monetary metals that went right through Spain and Portugal, again, into Atlantic Europe and into the continent of Europe. So you had enough new money coming in that economy could afford the legacy of Roman law, which was a very creditor-oriented law, and now that legacy has run its course, where all of Europe, England, America, much of the Third World, are all debt-strapped, in which all of their available, disposable economic surplus is pledged to the creditors, and the creditors, as we said, don't spend the money on goods and services or buying what labor produces. They buy other financial claims, real estate, bonds, stock, property, monopoly rights, and foreign property. So you're having, all of a sudden, the ending of the circular flow between employees and employers. A hundred years ago, under Ford Motor Company, Ford said he paid his workers $5 a day so that they could afford to buy the cars they produced. That was called Say's Law in the 19th century. The idea is that production creates its own demand. The producers hire labor to produce goods and services. The labor use their wages to buy what they produce, and the employers use their profits to buy more capital equipment and build more factories, and there's a circular flow. But this circular flow did not include a leakage into the property and the financial sector. And once there was a leakage into finance, insurance, and real estate, the fire sector, now more and more of the income that people earn has to be paid to the fire sector, paid for rent paid for mortgage payments, paid for education loans, paid for credit cards, paid for bank loans, and now paid for monopoly services. So all of a sudden, you no longer have this circular flow. That's why the economy's shrinking, just as it did after Rome. So could you tell us about other examples of debt throughout history? I know Mesopotamia had an elaborate credit system as well. Well, there the system was, as I said, you had all of the techniques of enterprise and of credit and debt were developed in the temples and the palaces because the rest of the economy was operating on a subsistence base. Mesopotamian temples emerged out of the same kind of tribal society that anthropologists have studied all over the world, where in most tribal societies, the surplus is turned over to the chieftain's household, and the chieftain is supposed to be open-handed and support the weak and the poor, take immigrants into his household, and essentially, the surplus is used for public ends, building temples, buying fortification walls, building them, building gates, building public infrastructure. But that's not happening today. Instead, the public infrastructure is being carved up and sold off to the oligarchy. And this took 3,000 years to develop in the ancient world, largely as a result of military warfare and confrontation. And today it's happening without military warfare. You could say that finance itself has become the new mode of warfare. And this is what I talk about in the upcoming book that will be available at this time next year, 
killing the host, Wall Street's war against the economy. Now, one of the big problems at the heart of our banking system and our expectations of growth is this whole issue of compound interest that continually grows over time. Now, where did that original idea of compound interest come from? And why can't we seem to think of another way to arrange our money system and our debt finance? We have the tablets that were used to train students in Babylonia in 2000 BC. And their tablets asked them to calculate compound interest to say, how long does it take for a debt to double at 20% per year, simple interest? The answer is five years. How long does it take to quadruple? The answer is 10 years. How long does it take to multiply 64 times? The answer is 30 years. So they knew that no economy could keep up with this. And we know that because they also had calculations for the growth of a herd of sheep. And sheep grow in a kind of S-curve. Again, I go into this in my Bubble and Beyond book, uh, and I cite all of these examples so that they know that the real economy cannot produce a surplus able to keep up with the rate of interest. Any rate of interest is a doubling time. And I go into the rule of 72. You can divide 72 by the rate of interest, and you have the number of years that it takes any given debt to double. The economy doesn't double in that time, much less the economic surplus, because people don't really pay the debt out of their entire wages. They pay it out of what they can save out of the wages. And if they're already living on a break-even basis, and they're already paying all of their wages for food and transportation and taxes, they're not able to pay the debt. They default. They lose their home. And we're in a default time. And that's what's happened in today's economy. When the economy can't keep up with the exponential doubling and redoubling of debt, you have defaults, foreclosures, and you end up with creditors foreclosing on the property of the debtors. They no longer can reduce the debtors to absolute slavery and bondage as they could in antiquity, but they can say, you know, you're free to to live wherever you want. You can borrow money to buy any house you want, but you have to pay all the money you earn to us as a mortgage interest. And you're free to go to school and get an education to get a job wherever you want, but all you're going to have to pay to whatever bank you choose. And so people are having to pay whatever they can earn in life for their mortgage on their home, for the education loan, for any medical expense that they might have. And the result is debt bondage or debt peonage. So this is just like almost another way of keeping people in that same kind of feudalistic system that we've had for so many thousands of years. It changes, but basically that's it. The idea is the same. The creditors always win. Is that because they're in charge of power? Is that because they make laws? Is that why? Partly it's because of the compound rate of interest. And I said the interest grows up faster than people can pay. But of course, they are in making laws. And so the laws they make are only the debtors have to pay income tax. The creditors don't have to pay income tax. And we'll make interest payments tax exempt. That way, we're going to let the banks have loopholes and multinational firms have loopholes so they don't have to pay taxes. This is the principle of the Queen of Mean, Leona Helmsley. Only the little people pay taxes. So once the creditors are able to make enough money off interest, they're able to buy control of the political process as well and turn the political election process into an option and make tax laws favoring themselves, criminal laws favoring themselves. They're able to make sure that Eric Holder gets appointed that's not going to throw them in jail. So financial fraud is decriminalized, essentially. And they're able to operate independently of the legal system or the 
political system and have their own way. And this happens over and over again throughout history. No matter yeah. what political system you go to, this is happening again and again and again. Yeah, and even in you know American system, which we tried so hard to set up in a way that would get rid of this problem, it keeps happening. And we keep seeing these bubbles reoccurring again. And the bubbles seem to come along with the same kind of idea of, of the rich people just buying up and taking up all the real estate and parceling it out. It keeps happening again and again and again throughout history. Well, the object reform in the 19th century wasn't against the creditors so much as against landlords. Remember, Europe had to deal with a landed aristocracy, and the big fight in Canada and America was against the big landowners, the railroads in America, the absentee landlords. And so politics didn't really focus on the financial issue so much, and it's only today that finance has essentially absorbed the real estate sector and also absorbed the mining sector. And while the political parties of the left focus on labor-employer relations, and they're focused on improving workplace conditions and labor's role, the fact is that industry is being stifled just as much as, as labor is. And so if you have deindustrialization, you're going to have deunionization, and you're not going to have jobs, you're going to have unemployment. And politics has not caught up to addressing the financial situation and the dilemma that we're in today. Throughout history, we've had these bubbles, and it seems like the real estate is often the area where we see a lot of them. There's been the tulip bubbles and the South Sea bubble, etc. But why is real estate often the target of these bubbles, and what is it about human psychology that leads us to participate in them? Well, real estate is the largest asset. So that the banks want real estate for the same reason that Willie Sutton robbed banks. That's where the money is. And the democratization of property has ironically led to the democratization of debt. Renters in David Ricardo's time, 200 years ago, when workers didn't own their own property, they had to rent from the big absentee landlords, and they'd pay a given amount of their money in rent. And at that point, as long as it was landlords that owned the property, voters were all in favor of taxing the land and taxing the landlords. But now that two-thirds of the population owns its own homes, all of a sudden they've been convinced not to tax real estate, not even to tax commercial real estate, not even to tax the wealthy real estate owners so that their homes won't be taxed. And they've been convinced that somehow taxes are going to squeeze them even more. And taxes really just squeeze the banks because by untaxing homes, real estate, you left more and more of the value of housing available to be pledged to the bank as interest. So all of the tax cuts have ended up being pledged to the banks as interest, and the homeowner is not in a better condition at all, but the incidence of taxation, it's called. This is not the kind of thing being taught in the schools or talked about in the public media. So voters are not really informed as to who benefits from what kind of taxes, and it's not a political issue. Is it that we could have avoided where we're at today? Is this an inevitable consequence of economic development over time? Or were there actual leverage points throughout history that we could have actually avoided this problem? Every economy has reached the point again and again where the debts keep building up. That's what a business cycle is. It's a buildup of debt. And as more and more debt has to be paid, it's like driving a car with the brake on. You're pressing the brake pedal closer and closer, and it leads to a downturn. But to each recovery, 
since World War II for America, Canada, Europe, has become weaker and weaker because you've started each recovery with a higher and higher debt, and now we've reached the debt limit. So this is the point where there has to be an awakening as to the importance of debt and finance in the economic system, and that the economy is really more about debt than it is about wage and capital relations. You have to start by looking at who owns the wealth, who owns the claims on wealth, and you look at the goods and service economy as a residual of the wealth economy, not looking at wealth as a residual of the real economy of income that's earned, of wages and profits. So people are still taught to look at the economy backwards, and until they start looking at wealth and the debt claims on this wealth, they're not going to be able to come up with a political program that is an alternative. Do you think it's possible over time to create a taboo against usury and this whole problem of how creditors just lend these unimaginable amounts of money to people who can't pay them? Can we actually develop some kind of social taboo against that? The Roman Empire was that the debts weren't paid and the whole system reverted to barter. And then it all started again. I mean, the fact is that the creditor class is so short-term, is so narrow-minded, that it just destroys the financial system as well as destroying the economy. It takes it all down with it. So, yes, of course, some people will understand. There are a lot of people that are talking about it. You've had Steve Keen on your show talking about it. You've had other people talking about it. So, obviously, this has to spread. Will it spread in time and widely enough to stop the downturn that's what nobody knows. So is this really a question of greed that we run into again and again? Is it human nature that pushes us in this direction? The mathematics of compound interest have nothing to do with greed. It has to do certainly with an asocial, looking at as if the workings of the financial system are somehow natural law, so that many of the individuals who work for firms are not greedy themselves, but the system itself is like a leviathan. It's devouring the economy by the mathematics of compound interest. So it's not a good idea to personify it in terms of greed because you'll have somebody who's not greedy. For all I know, President Obama isn't greedy, but he's in the service of people who are utterly antisocial and who selected for president someone who apparently has no social views except to grab everything he can for himself and his family and to be a professional double-crosser as a politician. So it's not that he's greedy. He's just small-minded and trivial and mediocre. So it's really the mediocrity in service of this principle of compound interest that just is tunnel vision. And that's really the problem. It's more mediocrity than active greed. Do you think the financial class realizes it's destroying the productive aspects of society and that financial sector planners... Everybody in the financial class realizes it's destroying society. That's why it's taking the money and running. That's why the bond market is going down, as you asked at the beginning. They know the game's over. They know that they've killed society. Now they're taking their money and they're buying farmland. They're buying houses all over the world. They're buying Picassos. They're going to live nice like lords and lord it over to the rest of society that they've killed as that society that they've killed sinks into poverty. So on the question of optimism for our collective future, you know, you, you <laughs> say in your book and, you, and you've said before that our debts won't be paid. So the question is how the debts won't be paid. Is there a case for optimism? Sure. That in the end, so many people will die and suffer. There will be a revolution and the system will come to an end. It cannot survive as it is. You could say a political system that bankrupts society and leads to a dark age cannot continue. 
So the only way to get out of this current system that we're in right now is for the revolution to happen and to cast us all into another dark age. Well, certainly an intellectual revolution. Unfortunately, when people get poor, this is not an optimum time for them to get more intellectual. So they're probably going to be demagogues. You could say that fascism occurs when socialism is unable to put forth an alternative. So the choice is, is there going to be a socialist alternative that will write down the debts and redistribute the wealth and take the public sector that's been privatized back into the public domain? Or is there going to be a kind of neo-fascist movement as there was in Chile and that there are in other countries like that? episode number 67 of The Extra Environmentalist. And up next is Nate Hagens on the relationship between debt and the global energy picture. When I got out of graduate school, I just wanted to make a lot of money. That was the environmental cue I got to impress the ladies and buy a car and get an apartment. And I was always quick with numbers, so I figured I'd go to Wall Street. And a fascinating place, very exciting. And I quickly learned that my pressure to feel successful was based on the metrics of people around me. And if they made a big trade and made $10,000 commission, I felt all the more pressure to sell someone something and get a commission, etc. Fast forward several years, um, I had billionaires as my clients, and I, I recognized pretty quickly that they were no happier than, than you or I, and that every morning they woke up and put their pants on and tried to get feelings and brain chemicals and experiences the same way that you and I do. A lot of times that was based on how much money they would accumulate, and I met several that wanted to turn $100 million into $200 million and then quit, and five years later they had $500 million, and it was more of a game and an addiction than actual productive capacity. So yeah, I made a lot of money and I thought I would always make a lot of money. So I spent all my money taking bizarre trips and you know living large lifestyle. Then in uh, about 12 years ago, I figured out there's a problem with, with all this. And I started learning about environmental externalities, the fact that we don't price biodiversity loss and, and climate impact and pollution into our market system. And I, I started to feel very bad about that. And eventually I learned about resources because I was trading oil futures and such, and I learned that, boy, oil is not only going to 
peak in my lifetime, but it'll peak soon in the sense that it's going to become a lot more expensive. So I quit and I went and got my PhD in ecological economics. And now I'm living on around $30,000 a year on a farm. I don't have a lot of savings, but I'm surrounded by people that don't have high pecuniary aspirations. They're happy with nature hikes and, and playing with dogs and producing our own food. And the key, I would say, is my girlfriend doesn't care about money. And we do care about money because we have to pay the bills. But I don't feel pressure, like sitting next to these guys in cubicles that need to make a million dollars a year just to cover their nut. I don't feel that pressure. So I think I'm still stressed about the future, but I feel like I'm living more on a symbiotic balance with my environment because I spend a lot of time outside in the garden, in the woods, and not everyone can do that. And I feel like what I've learned in the last 10 years is my savings. I've learned a lot about how our human ecosystem works, and I got paid in human capital, which is knowledge instead of financial capital. It's not going to help pay the bills. We all have to do that somehow. Bubbles are a natural part of our evolutionary history. We we are prone to be in bubble behavior because we are a social species and we follow the cues of people around us. And if people around us are getting an extra house and an extra boat and they look cool because of that, we feel like we have to do that and then one on top of it. And then we feel like we've gone up the status rung. Our entire society has been promoting conspicuous consumption and more stuff via marketing and via media and television. And we're sending this these cues to China and India to try and live like us and we really don't get happier with more of this stuff. I mean I talk to some of my Wall Street friends that are have five or seven million dollars now and they're worried about how to protect it and they spend so much time worrying about how to protect it that they're not even enjoying their own lives. So I think um, we are sending cultural signals that to have more money will make you successful. It's just like a squirrel in the wild putting away nuts. Of course we're putting away digital abstract nuts but I personally have come to the conclusion that the human economy is nothing more than transforming natural resources into dollars, and we transform dollars into brain chemicals or feelings plus waste. And most people on Wall Street just look at the dollar thing. They measure success in dollars. They don't look at natural resources as a finite primary driver of our economy, and they don't realize that wealth isn't what they're really after. What they're after is the feelings that wealth gives them. One of the brain chemicals we get is, is dopamine from novelty. Um, dopamine peaks when your unexpected reward is at its its peak. So to take a, a flight to Switzerland and go heliskiing in the winter gives you a lot of dopamine, but it also emits a lot of carbon and, and other problems. So a lot of the fun activities that we have in our society are, are very polluting. The other aspect of brain chemicals is we don't care really about the future. To most of us, the future isn't even real beyond this weekend or next week. So the brain chemicals of let me have a, a beer or a pizza or go flirt with that attractive woman are much more powerful than envisioning us in a, in, a, in a world with slime molds and jellyfish only alive in the ocean in 50 years. When I talk to people that were my friends on Wall Street, um, about half of them are lo no longer my friends and the other half are really coming along and they, th the things that we talk about in ecological economics, that energy is the driver of everything in our economies, that we have environmental problems, are known. 
they get these things, but it's it's hard for them to leave a job in the city making a million dollars a year with private school, and there's just no there's no plan B. There's no easy switch for them. There's no exit strategy for most people to go into the new paradigm. I think a lot of people know that things are different now and that there's going to be a change, but they they don't have an easy action. So I think the fundamental okay here I'll tell you this we're trying to raise money and resources for these efforts to prepare America for the end of growth because I believe growth is almost over the drivers which are cheap energy and available credit are, are waning so I talked to a, an old client of mine who's a household name billionaire a few months ago and he's like well America's gonna be energy independent or we have all new oil production and so I'm not worried about any of the things you say maybe what you say might happen in 20 or 30 years but not in the next 10 there's a fundamental misunderstanding on Wall Street of what really drives our economy what really drives our economy is incredibly cheap fossil fuels that are so powerful that for all human scales they're indistinguishable from magic one barrel of oil has 5.7 million BTUs in it. If you translate that to power, energy per time, the ability to do work, is 1,700 kilowatt hours. The average human does about six-tenths of a kilowatt hour of work in one day. So accounting for vacation days and weekends, that's 11 years of work has displaced by a barrel of oil that costs $100. So one barrel of oil, $100, displaces $500,000 of potential work from a human. And the story of industrial is we've applied a lot more energy to replace human labor. And because of that, we've got higher wages, higher profits, really cheap products, and more people. And so as fossil fuels get more expensive, it doesn't matter how much they cost in dollar terms as much as how much it costs in resource terms. It takes oil and diesel fuel and natural gas to extract oil. And those costs are getting very expensive, which eventually means there's less of that oil, coal, natural gas for the rest of non-energy producing society. There's a, a extraction costs for oil in the United States, forgetting about what the oil costs us, but extraction costs to the oil companies cost 17% a year increase for 10 years in a row. So the stuff is getting harder. And what ends up happening then is our fossil slaves that we have behind us, and the average American has 60 barrel of oil equivalent use of coal, oil, and natural gas per year, which translates to 600 fossil slaves standing behind us. And what happens is fossil fuels get more expensive is the pay raise we have to give to those slaves goes up, which means less profits, lower wages, more expensive goods, or less people, or some combination thereof. For a lot of people, um, I believe that sending a cue that we can be happier with less is perfectly valid. I think for most middle to upper class people, if they consume 30 or 40% less and simplify, that's actually going to be a very healthy, positive thing. They're afraid to do it because no one else is doing it, and you get ostracized if you, you buck the system like that, but I think that's possible. For the lower half of society, you can't tell them to consume less because they're not consuming enough already. So there's, there's, there's a couple different uh, perspectives there. I, I think eventually, and it's happening already, Justin, that there's a little bit of a, a coolness about being a slacker, and not a slacker as in lazy, but just I'm departing from the 
got to get a job, got to get an apartment type of thing. Work in your communities. Be a little MacGyver on tools and enjoy your, your life and, and be more in ecological line with what we could be. And I, I'm starting to see it happen. But basically what we need is it need, we need to be cool to be an organic gardener instead of a real estate developer. And if people start to have uh, um, negative feelings towards people that are destroying the environment and consuming a thousand times more than they need to, that is an evolutionary driver, is disgust and shame. And if we have a cultural movement towards that, um, I think that could impact things. When I talk to natural scientists about these problems, it's like, well, no kidding, there are limits, there are energetic limits. Humans are not separate from nature, we're part of nature, we're related to our ancestors, that has obvious implications for our, our choices. When I talk to economists, everything is, well, we've done that and we've done that. And economists basically think that growth uh, is based on labor and capital. And that is explains our productivity. But in the oil example I just gave you, productivity is because of these cheap energy slaves. That's 90%. Technology has just allowed us to use energy in more creative ways. Um, but when you look at oil return on oil, we used to have 100 barrels out of the ground uh, for a one barrel investment. That went down to 30 to one, then to 10 to one, and now it's maybe five to one in, in the US. So economists aren't trained in biophysical principles, and I don't think you can untrain them. I think you need to train or educate the natural scientists, and a lot of them would sign on to this worldview because it's provable and it's common sense. As far as how debt uh, figures in this, I don't think you can accurately project oil production or even oil cost using dollars and without understanding how debt works. Debt comes into existence. Simultaneously, a loan and an asset are created at a bank. Purchasing power does not leave the system anywhere. And this worked fine as long as there were opportunities and cheap energy and growth potential and empty spaces because we needed more money to come into the system. But now we are papering over our natural resource limits with more and more credit. And increasingly, this credit is coming from governments and sovereign entities and central banks. So there, there is a limit to how much that can impact the economy. Part of the limit is trust and how much people understand this. And part of the limit is how much can we not pay back, but how much can we service? In my view, interest rates are permanently going to be low because if they go up, we have a big problem. I think the peak oil story is much misunderstood. It doesn't really matter when the uh, maximum year of production happens, especially when we're subsidizing it all by more and more credit. What matters is oil's cost and its contribution to society. And if all of our fossil slaves have to get a 200 or 300% pay raise, we can't, with our, such a huge, complex society, globalization, et cetera, we, we can't continue to grow that in a rising cost environment. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I kind of view the world as a, a normal distribution with different um, areas under the curve. I think the most likely scenario is we kind of muddle along at zero to slightly down uh, to slightly up for, for, for several years, and the government takes a larger and larger role in, uh, in our economy, guaranteeing things, uh, nationalizing industries, and uh, we lose some of our freedoms there. But we probably have too many freedoms, and eventually the government is probably going to have to get bigger. Now, there are possibilities of, of more negative events that happen in the future, because anytime there's humans involved, there's uh, idiotic choices that, that may pop up. 
up. But I think what comes next is for most people, the end of growth is already here. Uh, since 2006, our economy's grown at around eight tenths of a percent per year, but all of that has gone to the top 5%. In fact, since 2006, 90% of Americans have less take-home pay and most things have gotten more expensive. So for most people, the end of growth is already here. And what we need to do about that is uh, engage our institutions uh, and foundations on uh, devoting resources towards, not towards this, but towards this or this, because no one's preparing for that. It won't come from our government. It's too scary of a, they, they are talking about growth and jobs and that's the most important thing. This might sound academic or wonky, but for the last couple of hundred years, we applied more and more energy to uh, a growing planet. It was very cheap energy. And as energy costs more in energy terms, our energy productivity went down. And to replace that and keep the spigot wide open, we replaced it with credit model. And the whole world, the United States and other countries, went to debt as a way to keep the economy growing in starting in the 70s and all the way to now. But our debt productivity started to decline then. For every dollar of debt that we added to the system, we grew our GDP less and less than a dollar. And eventually it got to be so low that we only grew it by a few pennies for a dollar. So debt productivity declined. And then what happened is central banks took over the role of commercial banks and we started to have a, a virtuous cycle between governments and central banks and sovereign with quantitative easing, et cetera, where they started guaranteeing things. And that was, now we're having a central bank productivity is declining as quantitative easing, the impacts are less. What comes next is what I call Orwell productivity, which is when we start to change the rules and we change the definitions of what GDP is in an effort to make things seem kind of like they're going normal. And eventually Orwellian productivity will decline. We will do everything we can to keep the current system going and not prepare. So I think people and institutions need to be preparing on a parallel path, understanding what's, what's happening. And that closes out the conversation I had with Nate Hagens at the U.S. Society of Ecological Economics meeting in Vermont earlier this year, and also our discussion with Michael Hudson about his book, The Bubble and Beyond. It was actually really timely that we had our discussion with Michael Hudson scheduled for this week because right now the U.S. government is shut down and on the verge of a potential default later in the week. We're recording on the 11th of October, and there's no way to know how the discussions and deliberations are going to progress over the next few days. I personally think a default is very unlikely because given the magnitude something like that would have, it's going to be negotiated around at the moment. But it's also important, given the things that we've learned through the interviews that we've done on our show, that eventually defaults like that are coming because our economy is no longer going to be able to grow like it used to. These debts won't be able to be paid off. One thing that I always think about is what if I was living now as if I was from the future 10 or 20 years down the line? How would that mean that I'd be living differently? 
And so thinking about these big defaults and these big uh, budgetary battles, it really changes the way that I think about these issues and moving forward. But I'm in Canada. And Seth, you're in the United States. What is it like there when you talk to people about the shutdown? Well, talking to people that don't know what's coming is always a difficult thing. I'm looking to go backpacking the next couple of weeks because the weather here is starting to get cooled off and very beautiful. And most of the national parks in this area are shut down. There's no one there to enforce the gates opening and closings, no one there to enforce the trail closings and openings. So the parks are shutting down. There's no one there to be there. These are small things. These are little trivial things in the course of a bigger picture going on. But these are definitely realities that are happening When you think about it, though, these small little pictures of what a a closed down state are are just little snapshots into what it's going to be like when these kind of closings, these kind of national services become a thing of the past and where no longer is government going to be in charge of running a national park. It might be privatized. Can you imagine like a GlaxoSmithKline running a Pisgah (laughs) National Forest in North Carolina? It's going to be a very interesting place to uh, go backpacking and you might have to get your prescription drugs out <laughs> while you're you're climbing a mountain and it's going to be you know it's going to be a very interesting kind of backpacking environment you know and that's the exact thing that Michael Hudson was saying today that the model has been is what happened in Latin and Central America what's happened in, in Latvia where austerity just cuts back at public services because of the last few decades of gutting tax laws. And and as Hudson was saying, the model is you sell off all the public assets to private owners and the cost of everything goes up and the operations of everything becomes extremely expensive and the consumer economy goes away because everything is now the corporation or private landlord. And so you have those mega corporations that own all this stuff that then take over all the assets in your city. It takes me back to an episode of This American Life where they were talking about America and how it was dealing with the post-2008 financial crisis in Colorado Springs in Colorado. I don't know if it's this way anymore. Maybe our listeners can enlighten us to whether this is the case. But there were like individual streets that voted to pay to turn the lights on or not. And so they pooled their money and those streets would turn the street lights on. And the streets that decided not to have street lights didn't have any streetlights because the government in Colorado Springs didn't have money. To oh, I heard that episode. Anymore. Yeah, yeah that, that was pretty wild where you actually had to go and pay for the individual streetlight <laughs> that you wanted on. So neighborhoods would get together, <laughs> band together and get their streetlight turned on. <laughs> what a crazy world that would be. Yeah, but it's very much the world that we're headed into, and it's not going to make its way into the headlines or into the press anytime soon, that kind of recognition. And so you have this massive disconnect, and I don't know what happens there. I followed Michael Hudson's suggestion of reading about 13th century England, and so I read a book on life and times in the Middle Ages about the economy then. And as the Roman Empire collapsed and as large numbers of people were forced into poverty— What happened was the land and tenant farmer relationships where people had to farm land at the behest of these massive landlords who owned everything and pay off large amounts of their – what they grew to the landlord in order to stay there. The historian writing the book described it as a general malaise in the population where just everything seemed so limited and no one seemed to have any intellectual energy. And that's the problem is that it's that very mood – 
that we have to avoid if we're going to find real alternatives to this. A lot of times when we talk about it, the economy imploding and kind of falling apart and this slow shrinkage that Michael Hodson talks about and about this intellectual malaise that you were just talking about, Justin, it feels a little bit to me like like a marriage, like a marriage that has gone bad and a, a spouse that doesn't really want to be in this kind of agreement anymore and so is doing everything that he can to get as much out of it while he still can and, and pull as many resources out of it well before it just all falls apart. And that might be a really ugly way of looking at the economy. It might be a sad way of looking at the economy. But it seems like there's so many of these different kind of analogies about how our country needs to move in a different direction than where it is currently and how we don't even have the willpower to make that change. The individual willpower, perhaps, but also the collective willpower, the ability to work together as a society has been slowly dismantled since the 70s, since really the whole Vietnam uprising scared a lot of the elites in American society as to what could happen if they lost control. And so everything from labor unions to social cohesion was gutted and replaced with an ideal of a consumerist dream even more exaggerated than that of the 50s and 60s. And it's been a really terrible thing to see even in my lifetime as it happened. But it's difficult to imagine, as Michael Hudson was saying, any sort of movement arising that can truly take on the nature of this systemic crisis. But we still have to work at building that alternative vision of society. Because as the government shuts down, you know, maybe the shutdown gets resolved this time around and the government only stays shut down a few weeks. But then in 2014 or 2015, the government stays shut down for months at a time. And then maybe by 2025, you know, people are shocked when the government opens finally because it stays shut down so much. And in those times, there is going to be space for people who have a coherent explanation of what's happening to be able to put that forward. And they're going to get not only airtime and media, but time in meeting halls across the country and the ability to have their proposals read. And I just go back to where we were when we started this show back in 2010 and the ideas that we were discussing. And they felt much more fringe even back then than they do now because the systemic crisis has become so much more acute. It's up to people who have new vision of a reality that is meaningful and one that includes different points of views and bring into into consideration the global environment that we live in. There's this room for this rebuilding to happen. And if you can stay sane through it, if you can stay put together and you don't go crazy because you can't watch Kim Kardashian on on your TV all day and you know your, your sports team is not there anymore and you, you can't get that Wonder Bread that you used to love so much from the grocery store. If you can stay sane through that. Or the Twinkie. Right. When the Twinkie, when the Twinkie goes away, that goes the way of the dinosaur, and you have to start making your own Twinkies. It's gonna be it's gonna be really stressful and hard for a lot of people. And especially those who have built their lives around these kind of ingrained powers, these ways of thinking, these cultural identities that have become so very part of who they are, of who they see themselves and how they see themselves in society, that when these these things become non-existent or unavailable or too expensive and change has to happen, people won't do it or they will decide not to do it. And, you know, there's there's a lot of people who decide, will decide that this is not the life for them and, and probably not be survivors. It's a sad thing. It, it is a sad thing and it's not something to bend over and accept the society that Michael Hudson is saying as an inevitability. 
But that takes us into some of our news items, which Robin sent along a blog post recently called Collapse and the Changing Face of Suicide. And so in this article, which we'll link to in our show notes, it discusses how, according to the American Journal of Public Health, motor vehicle crashes were the leading cause of death between 2008 and 2009 in the United States. But now that distinction has been replaced by suicide. And it's a decade-long trend that's been building, and it's increased 15% over the past 10 years. One example is in Greece, where the suicide rate for men rose by 24% between 2007 and 2009, preceding the acute debt crisis, and then by another 40% in Greece in 2012. And it's the same thing has happened in Italy, where suicides motivated by economic crisis grew 52% in 2010. But the same trend is happening in the United States as well. 80% of all those suicides are committed by men. And, you know, it's in large part because our society paints men as breadwinners figures, these people who are very much tied to their job and very much tied to having that responsibility for the family. And when you take that away from from them, it it just becomes overwhelming and, and they lose it. Yeah. Having that emotional resilience and having that psychological fortitude is more valuable than anything else at this time. And the ability to apply yourself to something that engages yourself is just so incredibly important right now because so many people are finding themselves as exhibited by the U.S. government shutdown, that they thought they had a secure job, they thought they had a secure income source, and that can just be swept away very quickly. All of our societal assumptions are running up against a harsh reality where they can no longer be met in the way that we thought they would be. And one of the things that you hear is that Iceland was able to navigate this debt crisis and basically tell foreign banks to screw themselves. But as we heard from Michael Hudson, that actually wasn't the case. That's a misrepresentation of what happened. And so another news item that I came across recently is this article in Bloomberg from just a few days ago titled Icelanders Run Out of Cash to Repay Foreign Debts. And the article is just about how all of the debt that's owed from Iceland to foreign creditors still, the country's projected to be short of funds by about 20% of gross domestic product to actually make payments on that debt. And so the nation of Iceland faces a really serious repayment risk on their foreign debt. And so the problem is that the current account, the cash on hand that the country has to pay the debts is actually declining. And so it's making these debt payments even harder to service. If Iceland isn't the template of what to do in a crisis, then what do we do? That's something that I hope we can touch on in our show through the various interviews and the various conversations that we have. But I think that with the U.S. government shutdown, it makes it clear how the systemic crisis is affecting our institutions. And the reason the U.S. government is shutting down is not because suddenly they just decided to shut it down instantly. It's because the U.S. couldn't decide on a budget many, many times before. And so it sets up that condition where if you're constantly passing you know, several month resolutions to fund the government, then all it takes is one minor disagreement and uh, or delay, and then the whole thing shuts down. But the problem is, long term, 
that you're constantly making these several month decisions to fund things. And so you have to get beyond that. And no matter when the US government reopens, I don't see how that underlying dynamic that continually shortens the time horizon for decision making is going to change. And so it makes me think that the US may be entering into some form of constitutional crisis, if not now, than in the very near future. All these big, big questions that are really intractable. This is pulling attention to the fact that there is a man behind the curtain. He is pulling the strings. He's making things happen. And we have to pull that curtain back if we're going to fix any of it. And this is maybe the beginning of that. Yeah, and I think it is the beginning. And whether a default happens this time around, it's not like the problem is going away. I was just talking about the context of you know several months funding of the government. And so it's very possible that this can happen again in a year or in two years, because even though all the media and major institutions want to say that growth is coming back the way it used to, as we know, it's not coming back the way it used to. And there's actually another article that we'll link to from Zero Hedge, where they take all of the IMF growth forecasts, where you can just see in the graph where the economy and growth projections just keep underperforming where everyone thinks that they'll be. And then the next year, the IMF just says, oh, don't worry, we'll return to growth then. And so there's all these examples of where growth was forecasted to return, and then it doesn't return. And I think that's just going to keep continuing. Even if we do have nominal growth, if we show GDP growth, we know that at a real level, it's the economy is hardly growing at all definitely not enough to pay back the debts. And so this ongoing issue of personal, private, corporate, and public debt on a government level is just going to be continue to become more acute. What's that thing that Albert Einstein said? Insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And it just keeps going. And so we're going to keep bringing you interviews and conversations on this process as it continues to unfold around the world. But some of the people who have appreciated our work and have sent us some money to help improve the quality of our show, fund blog posts, fund better video equipment, and all kinds of things have been our amazing listeners who've donated recently. And some of those amazing folks out there who take it an even step further and actually open their wallets as well as their ears to the extra environmentalists really make it possible for us to take the the show to the next level. So we'd like to thank Carla out in Quebec for her generous donation. And to Mr. Smith in Massachusetts for sending us a really generous donation. And also a huge thanks to Sally in New South Wales, Australia for the fantastic donation that also came with a note to say a shout out to Maxence, who's a big friend of the show. And Sally wanted to say to you, Maxence, a happy birthday and sorry that your flatmate took forever to do this. And so thanks to Sally and to Maxence for continuing to listen and for their donations. And if you are one of the people who've donated $30 or more, we'll send you a t-shirt but we haven't been sending those t-shirts out for a while. And that's because we're working on a new design for our t-shirts that'll be really cool and very special. And so we have all the list of the t-shirts ready to go as soon as we have that new design finalized in the next month or two. So if you're waiting on a t-shirt, you won't have to wait too much longer. Uh, But thank you for your patience and, of course, for your donations as well. One last person to thank here is Ronald. So thank you so very much, Ronald, out in Texas. Really appreciate your donation. Yeah, so thanks so much to all of our listeners. And also thanks to our team 
who helped make this show possible, from Chris, who is putting some major updates to the website design online just now. We have a new layout for the front page and a much easier layout to search through our back catalog. Also, thanks to Louisa, who is putting out some fantastic blog articles based on interviews that she's doing. Also, Kevin, for all of his fantastic editing work, this show is not possible without that amazing backend support. And also thanks to our newest video editor, Michelle, who's been putting in lots of time and actually has a new video that she's been putting together with Rick Wolf that will be coming out later this month. The Extra Environmentalist has a whole wealth of backlogged episodes for your listening enjoyment, all free of charge, all available for to you on your electronic device to download and do with as you wish. Dustin, where else can people find out about the show? You can call and leave us a voicemail by dialing plus one nine one nine seven oh one nine eight seven two or go to our website at extraenvironmentalist.com and on the right hand column you'll see a link to connect with us by Skype at our Skype username, the Extra Environmentalist or through our SoundCloud Dropbox, where you can just click and leave us a note. Also, feel free to shoot us an email, podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. We'll get into listener emails on the next episode. So to all of you in the future living in a post or pre-default United States, whatever that may be, or anywhere else in the world looking in on the situation, we are extremely grateful for your listening attention, and we consider this the utmost privilege to bring these conversations to you. So light a candle, invite your friends over, and host a dinner party. I've tried to cut these corners, try to take the easy way. I, I kept on falling short of something. I could have gave up then, but then again I couldn't have. Cause I've traveled all this way with something. I take it in, but don't look down. I'm on top of the world. And what is tapering? Tapering is a relative concept uh, which uh, describes the looming possibility of some intentionality in an area related to monetary policy. Tapering what? Tapering the easing. Correct. And what would happen if easing were tapered, Adam? Oh, that would be a complete catastrophe. Correct. Why? Well, because the problem with the economy is that the money in it was vaporised due to a filing error a few years ago and the market is now completely dependent on infusions of money from the central bank. Yes, and that's the idea that market efficiencies will rebuild the economy. That's the theory, Brian, but of course everybody knows if the market were efficient it wouldn't have destroyed itself. Correct. So what happens when Ben Bernanke is due to make a statement, Adam? What happens in the market? Yeah. Oh, there are safety procedures, safety drills, Brian. In, Correct. Uh, Correct. Yeah, right across the market. Sure, and what are they? Oh, get under your desk, uh, go and stand in the architrave. In a doorway. Somewhere safe, yes. Don't touch anything electrical with wet hands. Correct. And what happens if the market goes up on its own? If company yields improve, yeah. well, that'll be an even bigger disaster. Correct. Why? Well, because that would highlight the prospect that Ben might turn off the easing tap. Correct. Now, who wrote the central text used in MBA courses at the moment? Morris Sendak. Correct. Where the wild things are, of course. 
Well, Where the Wild Things Are is good, although a lot of people recommend uh, In the Night Kitchen. That's also a seminal work and should be studied very closely. Correct. And after that round, Adam, you've won an algorithm. Oh, my giddy aunt. It's all right. We're finished. You're telling me we're finished. Episode number 68 of The Extra Environmentalist, we speak with Dr. Dean Radin during our Halloween special about the scientific evidence for superhuman capabilities. And I was simply curious about that. Why is it that, that these magical ideas keep popping up again and again. From a, an adult's perspective, it's magical thinking and wish fulfillment and all of those usual explanations. And I was willing to buy that as an explanation. I didn't know any better reason to, to, to say that it wasn't right until one day when I was a teenager, I, I discovered that there was a, a discipline within science that was using the tools of science to test in the laboratory whether some of these things were actually true or not. Granddaddy, I was at school today and I saw in the history books the pyramids of Egypt. Did your civilization build anything as amazing as that? In my day, we had some pyramids. They were debt pyramids. People stacked their cash to the sky. Boy, you could see forever when you stood on top of one of them debt pyramids. Granddaddy, what did they look like? Boy, those debt pyramids were made out of condominiums and cul-de-sacs, made out of Rolls Royces and Rolexes. I remember the days when we could pile up our jewelry and just never have to pay for it ever. Credit cards were amazing. What's a credit card? Boy, a credit card is like your passport to heaven. Just imagine having as many prostitutes as you want and never having to pay for them. Granddaddy, what's a prostitute? That's a story for another day. <laughs> 